scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, your word to us uh, is a means of grace. And so I pray that it be that uh, even now for us. Uh, an instrument, uh, a way for you uh, to give to us your favor as we gain wisdom. The very wisdom of God. But not only that, but that this word will work in us by your spirit to change, to transform really our lives. So that we can look back on one day and say, yes, God's word is powerful. It works. May we see it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians please. And chapter 2, I want to read verses 5 through 11, 2 Corinthians and chapter 2, please. This is the word of the Lord, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 2. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to affirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, in this passage, there are two characteristics of church life. That is, life being united together as believers in Jesus. Church life, that which all believers are a part of, should be a part of particular churches that that share life uh, together. This life of faith in Jesus. So there are two characteristics that are mentioned here, not the only two characteristics in church life, but the two that are are pertinent to the occasion to which Paul writes, as he writes to this particular church in the ancient city of Corinth at that time, and and he writes to them two characteristics uh, he wants to highlight. One is discipline, the other is forgiveness. Right? Take discipline from these verses. Now, if anyone has caused pain, it's caused not to me, uh, but in some measure, to put it too severely to all of you, for such a one, this punishment uh, by the majority is enough, so you should rather, and then forgiveness, so you should rather forgive and comfort him, beginning in verse 7, and then elements of, of forgiveness. So uh, uh, these two um, characteristics of church life, there was something that took place in, in Corinth that affected not only Paul, but everybody, in, in such a way that a particular person had to be punished, even as the word there, disciplined. And then, when that was accomplished, the word was to forgive. Now, I know that uh, on this particular Sunday, being the Sunday of the year that it is in Lawrence, Kansas, lots of people are returning from the summer for the first time, not having been here for weeks, some of you months, some some been gone, some back to school, will be here today, and you're thinking, oh, what kind of a church is this? I was going to preach on discipline uh, as we... As, as, as we come back. And then some others of you might be thinking, you know, last week he mentioned giving for the first time in years. 
And so is there a pattern developing here? This week he's going to talk about discipline. And so the good news for me in my conscience is that you know how I preach. So we started 2 Corinthians whenever we started, and here's where we are today. So that's why I'm going to talk about these particular uh, themes, subjects, because they're here in the text. And we believe, I believe, that uh, as we read the Bible along and along, that God speaks to us, and that we need to read the Bible along and along so that we just don't pick our favorite passages. And so here we are today on this particular day. And I trust God's providence and the working of his spirit that this is exactly what we need to think about. And so here we are on this topic of discipline and forgiveness. Now, uh, first, I I want to just, my introduction is going to be about 10 minutes. So hang on. I I want to lay this out like this. Uh, I want us first to understand the idea of discipline more broadly than it is in this passage. Because in this passage, it's very specific towards a particular person who had grievously sinned, remained unrepentant, that's crucial, remained unrepentant, and thus then something from the whole church had to take place. Fortunately, came to repentance and would be forgiven. But, 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 but more broadly, when we think of discipline, uh, it's helpful, I think, uh, to understand it in, in the concept, context of a word that, that's related, and that word is disciple. You can hear the relationship between disciple and discipline. And a disciple, we, we sort of like that word, Jesus had disciples, and, and they were followers of Jesus, those who would become believers in Jesus and thus follow him. We're disciples of Jesus, which means we're discipled and thus disciplined by him. See, to be disciplined is to really be trained, to really be, to really be taught, um, to, to be shaped, uh, to be framed by, shaped by uh, a teacher, a subject. That's why, for instance, you can, when students return, you can always ask the question that every freshman and sophomore dreads. Juniors and seniors are used to it. Uh, but it's that question of, what is your major? You could also ask, what's your discipline? Right? You could ask, what's your discipline? In other words, you could say, who's discipling you? You could also say, how are you being disciplined by your professor and by the books you're reading, what's shaping you, shaping your mind, and ultimately shape your vocation. So to be disciplined is to be trained. And as a church, we do that all the time in various kinds of ways. We do it over coffee, friend to friend, just talking about the Lord, training one another, teaching one another, helping one another live this faith out, if you will. We do it in Sunday school classes. A Sunday school teacher is a discipliner, right? Uh, in that sense, using the word of God to shape people's thinking, to shape people's hearts, to shape people's minds. And so we're always being disciplined. Our whole worship service is one act of discipline in that sense, because we're, we're being trained. We're, 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 we're through the liturgy. We're being trained to think about God. How do we come into his presence? What happens when we come into his presence? Who is he? And why then do we confess? Why then do we receive assurance? Why then do we hear his word? Why then do we sing his praises? Why then? All of that is a process of 
discipline in the, in the broadest sense, you see, of that word. Now, more to this point, then, is the discipline we normally think of. I know when someone says the word discipline for teenagers, they usually think of being grounded, right? Uh, for little kids, they think of time out. Uh, for adults, I don't know what we think about. But, but the sense of, of, of discipline, of, of being corrected. And you get a sense, Paul uses this word and it just freaks me out. Punishment, right? Uh, and so there's this sense of, 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 of correction. And as we read through the Bible, we find is this kind of discipline uh, is in regards to two areas, really. One is doctrine or truth. That is, there's a standard of truth that the apostles have laid out for us in the New Testament. We see through the prophets in the Old Testament. There's a standard of truth. And when we deviate from that, then this discipline happens. And there's also behavior, the way we're to live. And when we deviate from the behavior that's laid out in the scripture for believers, for Christians, then there's a certain discipline. Now, this kind of corporate discipline, just so you're not afraid that when you go home today, you're going to get a call from one of the elders or something. Uh, you're probably thinking about your life and go, oh, I'm sunk. Um, they're going to be after me. But, but no, this kind of discipline from the church is the result of defiant, unrepentant sin. All right? Uh, again, we're being disciplined all the time. Every time I pick up the scripture to read, it's a disciplinary process. It's a training process. So as I read through the scripture, I, 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 I recognize my own sin. One of the reasons I read from the passage in Colossians this morning that I did from chapter one, uh, from chapter three, verses one through 17, is because I read that passage often in my own devotional life. And, and I do it primarily Because it wakes me up. Because it's a passage that tells me about my life now. It tells me I've died and risen with Christ, so live like it. And I look at my life, and so before then I can do anything else, it it sends me to my knees to confess my sins. So I figured it would do that for you today too. And if it didn't, read it this afternoon, it'll do it. All right? Now, it's good wisdom. That's how we're to live. And so we get up from our knees and we ask the Lord to help us to live that way. But first and foremost, it, it drives me there. That's discipline, you see. That, and, and when I repent of that, my sin, uh, in a sense, I'm good to go. I don't need to report that to anybody. I don't need to come back to the church and say, now punish me. Uh, you know, uh, I've confessed my sins. I'm forgiven. All is well, if you will, you see. And there are times then in, in one another's lives that when we're having coffee or when we hear a sermon or when we're in a Sunday school class, the word comes to us and that's disciplining as well. We repent of our sins or and maybe in the context of, of, of life in your family or life with a friend, Christian friend, and we're sharing the word together. That's discipline, you see. And, and none of that ever needs to really be announced to anybody. My theology is always being corrected by the word of God. Right? That's discipline. And always being corrected by your right teaching of me and to me. And so it's being corrected. And that says my life is being corrected as I read the scripture, as I pray, as I consider the things of God, as I watch your life. Some of you bring me to great conviction. Uh, my dear friend Jerry Bridges, when I'm with him and he visits, Karen always says, how was it? And I said, I, at first I felt really sinful. 
<laughs> you know, because just being around him makes me feel that way. And, uh, and, and my sin is exposed just as I talk. And, and then, then he's nice. And then we, I get used to it and we're good. But, 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 uh, but, but this, we repent all the time. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, as you remember, uh, uh, posted on his Facebook page, uh, the Dort Wittenberg, uh, 95 theses. I just said that to be cool. I have no idea what it means. Um, but uh, 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 the first one was essentially this. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ uh, calls us to repent, he, he intends that we live a whole life of repentance. You see, our whole life is repenting and having repented. I mean, that's, we're being disciplined all the time, being trained up all the time and comparing what we hear to be true, know to be true, see to be true with our own lives and, and repenting. And so that goes on all the time, you see, in the midst of church life. This is a dramatic situation of, of defiant, really, unrepentance. You know the, 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 the paradigm that Jesus gave concerning uh, discipling in the church uh, when sin arises in Matthew 18, verse 15 he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so when one of us is in some sense out of line and we're friends, then, then we go to that friend. And if the friend refuses to hear us, then we find another person who we can share this with, not to gang up, but to kind of test our... It may be we're wrong. Maybe this person really didn't sin against us. And you go to the second person and they say, hey, drop it, buddy. That's not a big deal. The Bible doesn't really deal with that. That's not an essential of the faith. Or there may be something that annoys you or that may be something that, 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 that's in your standard of conduct. But it's not in the Bibles this way. And so, so no, 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 no. Just go to them and say, sorry. Right? I'm going to drop it. But, but the person may say, you know, you're right. I'm worried about my friend, our friend too. Let's go. And then if the friend continues to be unrepentant, then then uh, you bring it to the elders of the church and then they go and, and to the church. And so that's, that's this process that Jesus will lay out. That's the process, no doubt, that happened in, in Corinth with this person, whoever he was, whatever he did. Uh, and, and, but he remained defiantly unrepentant. And so it came then, came then to the whole church. So you see, we do this, this discipline, but also forgiving because they're not opposed to each other, they're complementary. You can't just do one without the hope and expectation of the other. If you discipline without the hope of bringing someone to, to, so you can forgive and be reconciled, then it's just judgmental and harsh. You're just doing what Paul said he didn't want to do, which is lord it over them, you know, his authority over them. You're just sort of playing this uh, game of I'm better than you and I'm going to put you down if there's no hope for forgiveness and reconciliation. But if there's just forgiveness and no discipline, it's confusing. You wonder, what am I being forgiven for? And both of these are important because, you see, in the church, we need both purity, which discipline strengthens, and unity, which forgiveness facilitates. We need both of those. And both of those because we're to reflect God. God is pure. God is holy. And he is one. In other words, there's no division between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is to be unity among us 
as there's unity within God, and there's to be purity among us as there's purity in God. And so this whole church life is aimed at enabling us to reflect, bear the image of, God, who is holy, pure, and one, O-N-E, unified, and we are to be that were to be that as well. Now, one of the things that makes this difficult is, is in a sense, our personalities. You know, some of us are purifiers, more so, and others of us are unifiers, more so. And uh, so the great thing is that God throws us all together and says, work this out. Some of us, you know, our, our theme verse is, is uh, separate from all uncleanness, right? You love that one. And so that drives us. So anytime anything gets a little dirty, boom, we're on it. And we want to expel it, right? And others of us, and I know I'm just being stereotypical here and extremist, but, but you see the, the, the issues. Uh, others of us, our favorite verse is, judge lest you be judged. And so, so we want everybody to be happy and all together. We don't want any, and the others are looking for something. And, and again, the, the way to this is, is not to sort of, uh, balance them. In fact, uh, Robertson McQuoke and a, what did he do? Robertson was the president of Columbia Bible College and, and seminary in Columbia, South Carolina, passed away not too long ago. He puts it like this. He says, in the latter half of the 20th century, the purifiers who are weak on love and the unifiers who are weak on faithfulness are wreaking havoc with the image of God. Furthermore, they're creating a climate that makes growth to spiritual maturity exceedingly hard. Amid this strong polarization, is biblical balance possible? Here's what he says, and I think this is incredibly insightful, not only here, but in a a number of areas. He says, imbalance does not come from an overemphasis. Imbalance does not come from an overemphasis. It is impossible to have too much love or too much faithfulness. However, it's quite possible to have unfaithfulness masquerading as love. And God's people compromise through sentimentality or self-love or for some other reason are unwilling to exercise church discipline. They're unfaithful, though they speak much of love. Again, it's quite possible to have unlove masquerading as faithfulness. When God's people create schism by disciplining the wrong person or with the wrong motive, or in the wrong way, they're unloving, even though they speak much of faithfulness. And so you see, these things are complementary. They go together. And we must pursue them both. Thus, the reformers said that discipline, church discipline, good church discipline, spiritual church discipline, is a means of grace. They laid out... This idea, well, what's it mean to be a church? Well, to be a church, you have certain marks. You have the mark of, of, of biblical preaching, declaration of the gospel. You have the mark of the sacraments, the appropriate uh, uh, administration of the sacraments. And you have this mark of discipline. And this mark of discipline, like the others, is a means, really, of grace. It's a means of, of grace to the one disciplined. To bring to repentance. It's a means of grace to the church. To protect the church. But also to bring joy. When 
repentance happens. Remember, Paul said to the church in Corinth, I don't do this to lord over your faith, but I do this because I'm working with you for your joy. You see, there's great joy in all of this. You know, heaven rejoices when a sinner repents, and and the church is to rejoice when repentance happens too. And so this is to be for our joy, this discipline with forgiveness. It is indeed a characteristic of God. You know what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12? He writes, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Still, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But, but God disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. That's the point of it, isn't it? That's the point of it. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it or those who have been disciplined by it. Okay, are you with me? That's what we're after today. Now, very quickly then. What was the incident that was uh, necessitated this discipline and then brought someone to repentance and then forgiveness? Uh, we don't know. All right? I mean, we don't know exactly. I mean, there's, there's lots of different things we can read through the scripture. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, we had this incident that was uh, breath-snatching, if you will. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, Paul writes, he says, It's actually been reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Right? A man in the church has been sexually intimate with his father's wife. Probably not his biological mother. That would be a very odd way of saying it. But still a woman who is married to his father. And then Paul writes, And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Uh, Let him who has done this be removed from you. Um, And then he writes this. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And in other words, he's, this is how he describes his discipline. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've read this phrase a hundred times at least, to give him over to Satan. And I've never once studied it particularly because it scares me. Because I think I know what it means enough to know what it means. That I don't have to do the whole Greek thing and all of that. Um, Satan is the god of this age. He says, I want you to take him out of the protection of the church, out of the protection of Christ, and give him over to the one who would love to devour him. Now the hope is that in the midst of that, he'll see his sin and repent We've talked to him. We've done everything we possibly could to get him to see his sin, but he won't. 
And so you need to, to give him up in that sense. So perhaps it's this guy who Paul says, okay, you did it. It was severe. Severe, of course it was severe. And now he's repented. So bring him back. But you need to forgive him now. He's repented. So you need to forgive him. Or it could be, it's probably more likely, given the timing of everything and how Paul puts it in other places in this letter, it could be that when Paul made his painful visit, which he made, you remember, if you were here last week, he made a painful visit to the church. And when he did, he encountered, in one sense what he expected to encounter, but great opposition. There were super apostles that had come into Corinth and still there as he writes his second letter. And, um, um, and so Paul makes this visit to them and it appears as if there was perhaps one who was more outspoken than the other and really spoke against Paul and, and so hurt Paul really, hurt his reputation and all of that. And in so doing, hurt the whole church because you see, Paul wasn't being prideful about protecting his reputation. He knew it was necessary because an apostle, as an apostle of Jesus, he had the gospel, the true gospel. And if they rejected him, they were rejecting really his gospel the gospel that he preached. And, and that couldn't happen uh, for their well-being. And so Paul had to protect himself if you want to say, no, 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 I'm really an apostle of Jesus. And, and uh, even though I don't look like it, even though to you I don't seem like it, even though these other super apostles seem to be uh, healthy, wealthier, and wiser, and more attractive and all that, and I know I look like a dump because I've been beaten up so many times, and, and you're always worried about me because I'm always being persecuted, and you don't think that's a good thing, but really that's part and parcel of the gospel. And so so to 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 reject me is to reject this gospel in favor of that one, and that's not really the gospel. So I've got to convince you I'm really the apostle. And so Paul was devastated. He said it was a painful visit, so painful that, that I couldn't even return. I had to write you a letter about it. So he wrote them a letter about it, no doubt to say you got to discipline these people and this particular person. And so they did that. And the person came to repentance. So now Paul writes to them and he says, now that that's happened, you must forgive him. I just put him out. You see, the purity of the church, the aim of the purity of the church, isn't simply to put out that which is impure. But to be able to include that by way of repentance. You see, sometimes we say the church is made up of sinners, and that's true. But if that were all that's true, everyone in the world would be a member of the church. See, the church is made up of repentant sinners, not sinless people, but repentant sinners, people who have admitted their sin, people who have grieved over their sin, people who wish they hadn't sinned, people that would love not to sin. People who know that their only uh, hope is in the forgiveness that comes through Jesus who has taken the penalty of that sin. And the only hope that we have to live righteously in any respect is to take this righteousness that is given to us through Jesus, Jesus' own righteousness, and have that worked in us in such a way that we 
image it, that we show it forth. That's our only hope. Now, that's what it means to be a repentant sinner. That's why I say, Luther led us very helpfully to this, that we live a life of repentance. We live repenting. Uh, we never get comfortable in our own skin in that sense because we desire a different skin. We, we desire to be transformed. We desire uh, to be away from here and in the presence of the Lord and fully clothed before him, you see. So that's what it means. So we're made up of repentant uh, sinners. And so uh, we, we need to forgive one another. You know, I hope this isn't confusing, but we're not to be a community characterized by being tolerant of one another. Now, we're tolerant of one another in the sense that we get it. We understand each other. We know we're all prone to wander. When we sing that hymn together, everybody goes, yep, that's it. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. In fact, here's the evidence of it. I know that. So we understand. So we're tolerant in that sense. We, we understand our wandering together. We understand that we're sinners only saved by grace. But, but our, our purpose isn't, my purpose in my life isn't to tolerate sin in my own life or sin in yours, really. We come together and we say, let's not tolerate this in that sense of just sort of letting bygones be bygones and, and I'm okay, you're okay kind of thing, right? That isn't it. We're not a, to be a community of tolerance. We're not to be a condoning community, at least condoning of sin. We're to be a forgiving community. We're to be a community that's been forgiven and thus a community that forgives. Now, to forgive means there has first been an acknowledgement of sin that can be forgiven. It's silly to forgive if there's no acknowledgement of sin. But we're a forgiving community. We, we get it. We say, no, no, no. We're all sinners. We know what that deserves. And so we've been forgiven. Thus, now we live this out as a forgiving community. And Paul says, that's it. We're to be a forgiving community. If you're not a forgiving community, if you're just a disciplining community and there's no forgiveness upon repentance, then you're missing it. You're missing what it means to be church. You're missing what it means to image God who is holy and forgives. And so he says for you, now notice, notice how he puts it here. He says, uh, well, he says that... Um, this one who has caused pain, Paul's been a little self-effacing, not that he's really caused me pain, but, but all of you, but, but only in a certain degree. He says, so you should forgive and, and comfort him, that is, strengthen him, convince him, let him know that you've really forgiven him. Uh, or, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You know, you know sometimes we think, oh, they, they're not quite sorry enough, you know. Uh, and it may be in the whole repentance process, bringing that person to repentance. They really do need to see what they've done and, and they really grab a hold of the hurt that they've caused or, or any of that. And so that's not necessarily a, a wrong thing, a bad thing. It's a judgment call on, on how much of this. But, but Paul says you don't want to take them to excessive sorrow because then that'll just deplete him and destroy him. Uh, forgive him. He's repented. It's really, Paul says, it's really sincere repentance. So, 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 so now forgive this, this, this one. Now, just an, as, an aside, if you're ever the one who is the one being forgiven, uh, you can't 
go to the person who's forgiven you and say, hey, you need to treat me better now. <laughs> it's not an expectation uh, on your part. This is the word to the forgiver. This is how you're to treat them. But if you're the one being forgiven, there should be a real humility here. And you shouldn't go, hey, you're not treating me well enough. You've forgiven me. Come on, treat me better. Uh, it's, that's not quite it. It's to the forgiver. This is how you treat the one. Strengthen him. Make sure that to do all you can to make sure that you know that he's, that he's forgiven. So he's not overwhelmed by excessive, excessive sorrow that would just drive him to despair. He needs to know he's really been forgiven. And the one who really has repented will really need to know that even more because they, they understand the hurt that they've caused. And, and they're amazed even. You know how it is. You're amazed that someone could forgive you for that. And so they need to be... That's why God's... You know, as we read through the scripture, this would be a great um, activity for you some years to read through the Bible with a marker and an eye towards all the assurances of forgiveness. There's assurances of forgiveness all over the place in the scripture. Why? Because if you're really a sinner and you're really a repentant sinner, it's, it's almost unbelievable that God has forgiven you. I mean, you just, if you don't struggle with that concept, you probably don't understand your own sin. Because if you really get it, and you get the holiness of God, and he's so kind to us, to say, no, 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 you're really forgiven. That's why, again, we take you, I take you through these liturgical paces every Sunday. Confess your sin and then listen to this passage of scripture. You should be collecting both all the, the confessions we use. We've published them, at least the ones up through last year. But also, I need to do this too. I haven't done this yet. But, but publish all the assurances, right? Because we need those. And so even in relationships, Someone's really sinned and they've really repented. Then the church or individuals who've been sinned against need to assure them, I really have, really have forgiven you. And this is amazing. If we, if we take, if we take the, the father of the man who is intimate with his wife, you followed all of those connections. You the father, you know, the first Corinthians five, the, the, the son who was intimate with his father's wife. And think about the fact that son finally comes to repentance. And so Paul says, forgive him. And Paul says, strengthen him. Make sure he knows he's forgiven. Think about it from the father's perspective. Don't don't you think that maybe that father is thinking, Paul, I don't think you understand how bad he hurt me. Paul, I don't think you know the devastation that this was in in our family's life. I mean, you're just saying willy-nilly to forgive. And Paul says, no, 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 this isn't willy-nilly. He's really repentant. He really gets it. And we're way more like your son in his sin than we are like Jesus in his holiness. <laughs> and so, forgive him. C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is, all people think forgiveness is lovely until we are Faced with forgiving someone. Right? 
Or even the person who hurt Paul. Paul is saying uh, he's devastated the church. This person has come in and wreaked havoc in the church. He's brought false teaching. He's got people on his side. The church is split because of him. Families have no doubt split because of him. All the arguments that took place between husbands and wives about the gospel because of this person and Paul himself being disparaged and his reputation shot and he's been slandered and all of that. And Paul says, if it's that guy, Paul says, forgive him. He gets it. He understands. And we're more like that guy than we're like Jesus in his holiness. And so forgive him. You know, we're to forgive as we've been forgiven. I read to you, it might have sounded funny reading it, the Lord's Prayer this morning, rather than us praying it. But I, I did it. Uh, a, it's in the Bible. And, uh, and, and B, uh, for this expression in the end of it. Sometimes, you know, we, we say very quickly, forgive us our debts as we have also, or as we forgive our debtors. We kind of go through that quickly. But, but there's this sense in which that, uh, so, so Jesus sort of knew we'd do that. And so he then amplified on that. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. You go, whoa, really? Yes. Jesus wouldn't have said it, but what's his point? His point is that if you don't forgive, you probably don't understand your need for forgiveness. And if you don't understand your need for forgiveness, then you will have never confessed your sin. And if you've never confessed your sin, really, then you've never really repented of your sin. And if you've never really repented of your sin, you've never really stopped trusting in yourself and started trusting in Jesus. And so, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. It's it's that. Serious, that's why Jesus told that story. Remember the parable Jesus told in Matthew 18? He told this outlandish parable. He said, there's a man who owes another man 20 talents. Now, one talent is equal to uh, a year's wages, which means um, that, that he owed many, many years of, of, of income, right? Um, I'm sorry, one talent equals 20 years wages. And so you can just see 20 talents would be thousands. And he said, so he comes in and, and the man says, you owe me this much. And he says to him, he says, well, I'll pay you back. Give me till Monday, essentially, which is ludicrous. There's no way you could do that, but that's the way we are. Don't worry, I'll, I'll take care of this. And the man forgives him. You think, wow. Well, then this man who's been forgiven all of this goes out and finds somebody who, who, who owes him 100 denarii, which would be 100 days wage as opposed to years. And he owes him that much. Uh, and, and he doesn't forgive him. And everybody thinks, that's horrible. How can you be forgiven so much and not forgive this little bit? And Jesus kind of winks at him and says, yeah. That's how your heavenly father will treat you. He'll throw you into prison. And so it's that important. It's that significant uh, to forgive. So I know I'm out of time, but, but that's all right. Forgive me. The, uh, <laughs> although it really doesn't apply because I'm completely unrepentant. Um, so give me seven minutes. Um, 
So what's it really mean to forgive then? Very quickly, here's what it doesn't mean. It, it doesn't mean that there are no consequences for sin, uh, because there are. Just because you're forgiven doesn't mean that that your life won't be affected in some way or another by your sin. The Israelites were forgiven for the sin at Kadesh Barnea, and then they had to go through the wilderness, but they never got to go to the promised land that generation. They were forgiven, but never got to enter the land. David was forgiven his sin, but the baby died. Son rebelled against him. Things were never the same. The thief on the cross was forgiven, still died. Didn't get to go down off the cross, right? There are consequences to to our sin, even when we're uh, forgiven. Sometimes you can't be restored in the same way to the same position. I I meet with pastors all the time who have sinned in various ways, and they can be restored into the fellowship of the church, but I have to tell them they'll never be a pastor. Just, Just won't. I need to understand that. Sometimes in relationships, a relationship forgiven, but doesn't necessarily go back in the same way that it once was. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be trusted by the person who forgives you. Forgiveness is a gift. Trust is earned. And so it, it may be that you be forgiven, but the same amount of trust isn't, isn't there. It doesn't mean that once you've forgiven a person, the hurt stops. It doesn't mean that when you think of the incident that hurt you so badly that you'll have cheery thoughts about it. No, the pain is likely still to be there. And it doesn't mean that you'll forget the incident. Uh, oftentimes we talk about forgiving and forgetting, but, you know, that's, that's impossible if you have a mind, right? Uh, forgetting is something that's passive. It happens. You know, there's various reasons for forgetting. One is uh, uh, that you get old and you forget. And I can't remember the other ones. But... Um, <laughs> I love saying that. I've said that about five times over the last 25 years, and you always laugh. So I don't know if it's because you forgot I said it uh, or if it's because you're kind and you don't remember that I said it, and then you laugh. Because, you see, that's the point. It isn't that we, that we forget passively. It's that we choose to not remember it. That's the way God does it. God doesn't forget, forget, in the sense that it's out of his mind completely. You say, but he chooses. He says, I will remember your sins no more. Now, when God says he remembers, it means he's going to act. doesn't mean he had forgotten. It means he's going to act. And so when he says, I'm not going to remember, he says, I'm not going to act. And so he says, I'm not going to act as your sins deserve. And that's what it is, you see. It isn't, not, it isn't forgetting in that sense. Don't plague yourself with trying to get it out of your head. But work at not remembering. That is... When you see that person, that that no longer defines your relationship. That no longer defines them. That's no longer their identity. Right? And that. And so what does it mean then to forgive? Very quickly, my friend Thomas Watson, from centuries gone by, puts it like this. He says, when do you forgive? We forgive when we strive against all thoughts of revenge. And we stop trying to think, how can I hurt them? We forgive when we will not do our enemies mischief. What can we do to make their life miserable? But rather, we wish them well. 
Right? We wish them well. We, we desire the best for them. When you begin at that point, then you've forgiven. When you're no longer thoughts of revenge, when, when, when we don't want uh, to do them mischief, when, when we desire rather for them to do well, when we grieve at their calamities, when something bad happens, we grieve with them. And we say, oh, I'm so sorry. We don't say, oh, that's exactly what you deserve. And we say, no, I'm really, I'm really sorry. When we really pray for them, and pray God's blessings upon them, not God's curses upon them. We pray for them. We seek reconciliation with them. When we show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them, that is to say, when we find them to be in trouble, then we go to their aid. And we don't say, no, they've hurt me, so therefore I'm... No, no, they have trouble. We go to help them. And you say, okay, then I know. I've really... I've really forgiven. Think for a minute. When I read this passage out of Watson, especially, and I read it often, I really have to check my own own heart. Think about, very personally, just the hurts that you've received. Was it from a boss, an abusive family member, professor, someone who might have slandered you, Someone told lies uh, about you. Someone who was unfaithful in their relationship uh, with you. It could be someone in your pew this morning. It could be someone preaching to you. It could be someone in your neighborhood, somebody you work with, someone your past. And the question is, they've repented. Have you really forgiven them? And the good news for us is we can do that because Jesus has forgiven us. He, he, he bore the burden of our sins. And therefore, we needn't be vengeful. We don't have to seek revenge because justice will happen. It either happened on the cross. Jesus took it or it will happen. A judgment in their own lives. But we, we don't have to worry about that end of it. That's taken. And we mustn't ever be slower to forgive than God is. And we need to die to ourselves, die to our desire for revenge, die our desire to get back, die, die to our desire to see justice done. Just as Jesus died. And by way of the cross, forgive. And the great news is, there isn't any community that lives like this other than the church. And so, you see, if we don't live like this, then we give Satan uh, uh, play amongst us to cause division. He loves to do that. He loves discipline without forgiveness because it causes division and bitterness and excessive sorrow and all of that. And so when we forgive, you see, after we've thoroughly worked it through, then there's unity and purity And he hates that. He hates that. But God loves it. It's the image of God. It's a revelation of the gospel in the context of the life of the church. And for Christians, we can have assurance that we've really been forgiven. And there really is forgiveness. Because if we don't forgive, we'll never have assurance that there really is forgiveness, that we really have been forgiven. 
And the world will never know that there really is forgiveness in Jesus. Because we show it to them. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. You'd be with us. You'd bless us in this way that we'd be honest with each other uh, and that we could share real life with each other and really love each other and discipline each other in the best and most positive sense of that word and bring us all to repentance. You'd bless us. And that we could be that community that forgives In Jesus' name, amen.